with where things are at right now, one of his earliest works, The Andromeda Strain, was really important for us to think, you know, how, how do we approach some of these issues in the sciences from a human standpoint, from an ethical standpoint? And it's, those are really important questions to address. And yeah. I feel sometimes like people in the public aren't really aware that that's what science fiction really has to offer, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they kind of want, you know, the, the big laser battles and the explosions and action and stuff like that. And I love that stuff too. But I, I think at its, at its base for me, science fiction really is a way for us to, to ask deeper questions about ourselves. This is Jason Cadigan for the Cold Star Project. We're back with Dr. Graham Lau, the cosmobiologist, as he likes to call himself. He even has his own little favicon with the beard and everything looking away and <laughs> pretty neat stuff there. Graham, thanks for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. The, uh, the beard's definitely gotten um, hmm. pandemic scraggly is what I'm thinking of it ah. right now. Uh, I'll have to see a barber after this is all over. Right. <laughs> Yeah, there's all those little um, tweaky things, and I I feel bad for all the women out there who are uh, used to having themselves pampered a little bit and uh, and can't do that. But I've wanted you on for a while. This is is really cool, and we always have to wait when we book a time because it's popular and the calendar is is filled up. So um, it's great to catch up with here. Now, you belong to something called Blue Marble Space, and Blue Marble Space Institute of Science, where you have a couple different roles, the director of marketing and communications, which is a good role for you because you really value speaking and, and uh, communicating clearly, and we're going to get into that. I watched a few videos of you talking, including your presentation uh, at that uh, the speaking contest, and, uh, and we'll get to that as well. So let's jump in with, um, you've been with Blue Marble Space for the past two and a half years or so. It's, it's the third year of, of being there. What's been your goal for that period? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so Blue Marble Space, we, we are a nonprofit focused in that realm of sustainability, earth system science, space exploration, and how to help scientists become entrepreneurs and become involved in this goal to kind of make a better world for everyone. Uh, And so I I came on right after my PhD. Uh, I took a little month off after my PhD and and just did some camping and, and, you know, hiking and not thinking about research for a little while. Uh, And then I joined the organization uh, as director of communications and marketing and a research scientist at the same time. But for the, the communications and marketing side, our big goals have been, one, to really grow our engagement as an organization. We have well over 40 research scientists now in our organization. We have connections around the globe. Some of our people are in India and Japan and New Zealand and all over the states. And so we have people kind of stationed everywhere. Uh, we have a very large internship program that we run every summer uh, online, as well as every summer and throughout the year at NASA's Ames Research Center. And so we have a lot of younger students, uh, master's degree students, um, early doctoral students coming in and working with us through our organization. And so really just building up our engagement, letting people know that we're out here, we're, we're, we're bringing together people who want to make a better world. And a big part of that is doing research and how our planet functions and how life functions, uh, but then also considering what space exploration can teach us for the future. Okay. So big mission, and I really like it. Uh, I hope a lot of your uh, students and, and the folks you know interested in, in that um, watch because you're on the show and then decide to watch more episodes <laughs> of the Cold Star Project because part of my purpose is to increase that accessibility as well uh, for the master's degree students and the folks who are getting their education and wondering, like, how do I fit in to the world once I get out of academia, right? What do I do? And folks... The people that I've connected with, like Dr. Lau here, are all very nice, 
They're not going to tell you to get lost for trying to connect with them. And I've done all the heavy lifting for you. I have connected and reached out with them and demonstrated for you that they're nice people that you can connect to. So go ahead and do that. Uh, Dr. Lau's PhD is in geological sciences and astrobiology from the University of Colorado, Boulder. And uh, it's very important that we refer to this as uh, CU Boulder. <laughs> we talked a little bit yeah. about that. Yeah, the University uh, of California system came first. And so... Uh, they get the UC, you know, so you'll hear like UCLA and UC Berkeley and UC Riverside and UC Santa Cruz. And, and so Colorado wanted to be a little different. And so we go by CU. Right so. on. Um, now, you're the host of, this is really cool. You host a show like this uh, with a co-host called Ask an Astrobiologist. It's called the Ask an Astrobiologist Show. And it's a NASA-supported production. Um, and I'll say it's a little like this, but <laughs> it's got a lot cooler branding than what we've got because you're, you, you can use NASA there. So I'm curious what the most prominent takeaway uh, has been for you for that experience of being a host. That's a great question, too. Uh, yeah. So I love this show. Uh, my my, my co-host Sanjoy Sam and I, we take turns uh, interviewing other astrobiologists about their research and their interests, but also about their career pathways and how they got to where they are. And that's really important, especially for young people around the globe who want to be involved in astrobiology or who want to be involved in, in space exploration, earth system science, that kind of stuff. And the one thing that I've been learning more and more from this is that everyone can be an astrobiologist. You don't have to have a degree in one specific science or engineering, everyone can learn something about our place in the cosmos and can get involved in the conversation globally about who and what we are. And so for me, the show has been really, for me, the, be the best part is just reaching out to all these people around the globe now, making all these friends through social media and through my email, my website. People are just, they reach out to me after the show because they saw it and they wanna talk more and they wanna get connected to these astrobiologists who are doing other research. And so that's been just kind of fun for me to see all these people from different backgrounds and different viewpoints who want to be involved in astrobiology. Right. Yeah. And I've experienced a very similar thing uh, with my show. Space is a, is a fun field to be in. It's not uh, really protectionist or surly or anything like that. Everybody's in a pretty good mood <laughs> and, uh, and wants to connect because we all know we understand this much. <laughs> of, of whatever it is and maybe not even that and there's all this other space where uh, somebody else's expertise is going to fit in right and and it's fun it's just fun to talk about this stuff uh, what have you liked most about the discussions with your guests is there have there been guests who have really stood out or something in the process yeah there's been a few I mean everyone's different everyone comes to the show and comes to I mean their careers in astrobiology from different backgrounds my friend Daniel Angerhausen was on the show uh, he's not only a really great scientist studying exoplanets, but he's also a really great communicator as well and was a co-founder of The Explainables, which is a science communication organization that I'm also a part of. And I originally met him uh, not just because of our interest in astrobiology, but because of FameLab, because of us being science communicators and both competing um, on national scales uh, to try to share our science better. And so talking with him was really fantastic like that. Uh, and then I had a guest on when I was hosting, uh, Susan Schneider, who I really loved having her on the show. Uh, she's a philosopher, but she's also the current chair of astrobiology at the Library of Congress. And before our show, she and I had a meeting for, we were supposed to meet for like 10 minutes and do like a tech test and make sure our systems were all functioning. And she and I ended up just nerding out over all this like philosophy of science and philosophy of science fiction stuff. And 
And, you know, before every show, I try to read the papers. And if, if they have books, I try to read books and stuff like that from my guests. And so reading her book before the show was kind of just fun. It took me down a bunch of side roads mentally I hadn't been down in a long time. And, and so it was kind of cool. And I, I really appreciated having her on the show. And considering the future of artificial intelligence, what it means for our species, and whether or not aliens out there are more likely to be post-biological beings. Uh, and that's, you know, that's kind of a cool place to, to mix two of my interests, uh, science and science fiction. And so it was, yeah, it was a really good interview. Um, and you know, we, we, we have some other guests coming up too, who we're, we're really looking forward to. Uh, Bethel Kajar is coming up next week. Uh, she's a professor down at University of Arizona. Uh, she takes ancient genes and puts them into modern cells, uh, basically re resurrecting uh, proteins, resurrecting enzymes from the past to see how they function. Uh, and so that's really cool research. And I, I just sent a, a feeler out today to Kevin Hand to see if he wants to come on and talk about his most recent book that was just published this morning. So. Well, he probably will if he's got a book. Uh, <laughs> look forward to that one. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, there's always that little bit of a rush when you send out that inquiry, right? Of are they going to say, mm -hmm. get lost or, you know, welcome <laughs> right? me. And everybody's mm -hmm. always very nice, yeah. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the worst you, I've gotten is a no thanks. And, and it's not mm -hmm. about me. It's about them. It's just they, they don't enjoy public speaking and, you know, yeah. much you can do about that. So, a few years ago talking about speaking, you spoke at something called Fab Lab USA a competition mm -hmm. where you came in uh, in the top 10 of about 100 participants. And it's kind of like uh, you did like a six, seven minute sort of TED talk um, which, as a contest and, uh, and were rated it. And then the judges, I think there were three of them, asked you questions afterwards. Um, and that was, that was interesting. So Based on, you know, you being a show host and, and entering in this competition and that I could say that good communication skills are really important to you. And I'm I, like, I really want to know, how did you come to this understanding? Because nobody wakes up in the morning and goes, I'm going to enter a public speaking contest to get good you know? <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and get out there and do that. So what was this like the awakening of the idea and the process of getting to this point like for you? Yeah, so it's kind of a long story, uh, if I can mm -hmm. tell it. Yeah. So mine actually starts from uh, a childhood sadness that happened, uh, an event that just, just, just terrorized me. Uh, I was in, I think it was fourth grade, and I had to give a speech. Uh, I had to dress up as a famous character and give a speech about some reading I'd, I'd studied on. And I decided to do Ben Franklin. Mm. So the night before, my mother helped me. Uh, I, I had some of her clogs and some long stockings with some, some baggy pants. And uh, we went to the store and got me a tri-corner hat. And my father helped me with a, a coat hanger to turn it into some, some bifocals. Uh, and I felt really confident in my, my Ben Franklin garb. I really, I had the look down. And I spent so much time reading about Benjamin Franklin and really trying to put his life together. And, you know, it's fourth grade, so I had little note cards. Uh, I wasn't memorizing a speech. And I was so excited that day. And I'm like, looking through my cards. And then uh, the young girl before me, a uh, young girl named Jenna, got up. And she gave just this powerful presentation as Harriet Tubman. And I remember just like, I was just so blown away by her. I, I kind of forgot my, my own excitement and my own thoughts. Uh, and so I stood up to give this, this speech and I start reading from my note cards and I realize I'm missing some note cards. Uh, and I didn't know what to do. And I literally just like stood there, my face went red and I just started hysterically bawling my eyes out. Uh, the teacher had to come over and hug me and take me out of the room. They had to call my parents because I refused to go back into the class that day. Uh, and it was, it was just traumatic for me as a young yeah. person. And I thought I'll never speak again. Huh. I'll never talk in front of people ever again. 
But then as the years went by and I started getting interested more specifically in space exploration uh, through two realms, one through seeing things like Carl Sagan's Cosmos, Mm -hmm. hearing him speak with so much power Mm. made me want to speak better. And then seeing like Star Trek The Next Generation and and hearing Mm. Patrick Stewart's delivery of these great lines of oration as Jean-Luc Picard, Mm -hmm. these things really kind of catapulted me to want to become a better speaker, to find my own voice so that I could share what I'd learned. And I, I, I was starting to learn more and more about my own place in the universe. And I realize there's a lot of groovy people who want to share in this you know, exploration and, and speaking to each other is a really important part of that. And so the journey was long and arduous. I took public speaking courses in college. I took four years of a public speaking practicum. Uh, I joined Toastmasters a little over a decade ago and have been doing that since. Uh, and so for me, I, I think learning the art of public speaking, learning about oration is crucial to, to sharing your ideas, to getting them out there. Writing is awesome. There's a lot of great things you can do in art. I do a lot of graphic design, things like that. But honestly, speaking is so powerful in how it changes how you think of of talking to other people and how you learn to share your message with other people. Well, fantastic story, although embarrassing (laughs) at the time. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I didn't have a a public speaking issue, but I did faint in front of my entire elementary school in the gym (laughs) uh, while singing. A lot of people mm-hmm. did that, and I smashed a tooth. I don't have any cavities, but I have this one cracked <laughs> tooth with a root canal. So it can happen <laughs> no. to everyone. But so, so for yeah, all you trauma. kids out there who are, who are watching and or listening and thinking, gee, I got a project like this coming up, my recommendation is that you pick Samuel Clemens, and then if you forget your lines, you can just snarkily tell everyone to get lost and walk out of the room, and you'll be here. Yeah, there you go. It, right? <laughs> so, I love it. Yeah. yeah, a lot of folks don't know that he was actually, even though we remember him as, as a writer, during his time, he was actually the best known orator in the country, and, and he was paid primarily. Most of his, his money came from traveling and giving speeches. Uh, writing was a side gig, basically, for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was always giving lectures. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Let's hop into the, the biology part here of, uh, of it. Um, you've, so you've got this background in, um, and this, I'm going to read this out, sulfur cycling in like glacial environments. Okay, so... First of all, like, what is that? Uh, and then the, the next thing I thought of was like, is, is, we've got Jovian moons with things like this on it, maybe, I think, in my limited, ignorant point of view. Where do you see applying your technical knowledge next? And may, maybe before answering that question, explain a little bit about what the sulfur cycling is. Uh, yes, yeah, so, so I mean, the, the connection really is the icy moons. Hmm. But first off, I mean, sulfur, uh, it's an element. It's very uh-huh. crucial for life as we know it. Uh, it's one of the, the Schnapps elements or sponge elements, however you want to say it. Uh, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and sulfur. Uh, it's crucial to a lot of our enzymes and proteins. Uh, and life uses sulfur in a lot of ways, including for metabolic strategies. And so for my graduate research, I was really lucky. I got involved in a really cool uh, research at a field site up in the Arctic on Ellesmere Island. Uh-huh. Uh, that's Beside Greenland, just to the yeah. west of Greenland, Canadian. the field site is called Borpfjord Pass. Uh, it's, about, it's about 80 uh, degrees north, uh, so about 500, 500 miles or so shy of the North Pole. And I had a chance to go up there in 2014 for a couple of weeks and do some research. Mm. The cool thing about this field site, so it's, it's in a valley, and there's glaciers coming off of mountains to the side of the valley mm-hmm. and coalescing in the middle and making this large coalescence glacier in the valley. And right at the base of the glacier, uh, there are these springs that have been observed through time uh, coming up through the bottom of the glacier, sometimes even through the actual ice itself, making pipes 
through the ice, bringing water from the subsurface up to the top of the glacier. Uh, so what's happening here, this area has a lot of permafrost. Uh, mm -hmm. So for frosted ground where water can't flow. And so any pressure built up in the subsurface in an aquifer has nowhere to release. But under the glacier, there's warmth under the glacier. It allows the fluid to come up and come out. And the cool thing is it's bringing up sulfur from the subsurface in the form of sulfide. Mm. Uh, so you think about that, that, that uh, hydrogen sulfide, the smell of like rotten eggs, um, that kind of stench. Uh, you smell around like, you know, sewers and muck and stuff like that and mud. Uh, so that, that's coming up out of this fluid. And when it comes to the surface, it's mixing with the oxygen around uh, and potentially also being metabolized by organisms, we think. Uh, and that's a, forming these large, airily extensive deposits of elemental sulfur on top of the glacier. And so the site, I, mean, I, I had seen pictures of it before yeah. I went there and they were stunning. But just having the chance to go there, like the first time we flew over in the helicopter and looked down and just saw all of this yellow sulfur over about yeah. a kilometer or so at the base of the glacier. It was so cool. Hmm. Uh, and then, so we're interested there. And so my, my side of the research was in the mineralogy of the sulfur uh, and the, the salts and things forming inside of, of these deposits of sulfur and in the geochemistry occurring at the site. Uh, we were collaborating with some folks from, from the School of Mines, uh, Colorado School mm -hmm. of Mines, uh, John Spear and Chris Trevetti in that project uh, to do the bio biological work too, to see what organisms are thriving there and what kind of metabolic strategies they're using. And so trying to better understand how life uh, in a glacial environment like this is thriving and producing potential signs of life, these biosignatures that we have to look for life in other places is really cool for understanding life and sulfur cycling here on Earth, but it's also really important for icy moons like Europa. Uh, so the surface of Europa is that, that really thick crust of ice with all those cracks over it, the lene. Uh, and then down below that, maybe 10 kilometers or so down, is that really deep voluminous ocean. Mm. We don't know yet to what level any of that fluid can make its way through the ice and connect with the surface. Uh, hopefully the upcoming mission Europa Clipper will teach us a lot more about the surface of Europa and give us a chance to better understand if there is any connection between the ocean and, and the surface. If there is though, it's very possible that understanding signs of life in icy sulfur rich environments could be very important for Europa. We know that Europa has a lot of sulfur on the surface. Most of that's probably coming from, from Io or Eo. Uh, it's another Galilean moon of Jupiter. It's got more volcanoes erupting at any time on its surface than we do here on Earth. And those volcanoes, some of them are erupting with such force, they're actually blowing sulfur mm -hmm. out into orbit around Jupiter. And it's, it's smacking into the other uh, Jovian moons. Uh, and so Europa is getting basically dusted by, by, by Io's uh, expulsions of sulfur. But, you know, it'll be interesting then to see, is some of that sulfur getting down to that ocean? Is it allowing life to thrive in a, a sulfur metabolic kind of system? Uh, and, and again, you know, is, is there any signs of that kind of potential life on the surface? Because even with Europa Clipper, this upcoming mission, we also have the JUICE mission uh, from the European Space Agency, uh, the Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer. Uh, even with those two missions, we're not going down into the ocean of Europa we're not getting down into that, that area to explore. And so we're kind of still very much stuck looking at surface processes, surface chemistry. Uh, we'll, we'll be using like magnetometer, uh, for instance, on Europa Clipper to look at the depth of the ocean, which is awesome. And we'll be able to learn a little bit about how salty it is, but really getting an idea of whether or not there could be life down there. We're, we're a bit away from that. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. How many years about is it going to take to get those missions out there? 
Like how that's long a great question fly? because <laughs> because it depends on the rocket, right? And and so right now, uh, Europa Clipper uh, could take six years yeah. to get out to Jupiter, roughly. Uh, and so if it launches, say, in 2024, then we're looking at something like 2030 before it even gets there and then starts to do these orbits of Europa and Jupiter together and, and starts giving us all this great flyby data right. uh, and then would operate for a few years. But uh, if SLS, the Space Launch System mm -hmm. rocket, ever actually comes together, uh, maybe we could actually get there faster with a heavier lift rocket. And so maybe we could get there in three years. Uh, which always makes you know, anyone involved in these missions gets super happy about the idea of getting to <laughs> their place faster. Right. Um, you know, it helps a lot uh, if you can get the science done a lot quicker um, and get there and actually get the, get the data. Uh, but we'll see what happens. I mean, it really is dependent on the rockets. And unfortunately now with, you know, the pandemic occurring, mm -hmm. there've been a lot of issues now with, you know, missions and stuff like that. And so we'll see what the long-term repercussions are of this um, with, you know, getting launch windows and stuff and, and if that actually ends up hurting Europa Clipper, we're still quite some time away from its launch window. So I'm hopeful this won't, won't affect it, but uh, it, it can be hard to say. Okay. Well, let's assume pandemic calms down and we, we go back to some semblance of normal <laughs> later this year. Uh, what, what kinds of projects do you plan on working on next? So right now I'm actually working, I kind of, I kind of am jumping around a little bit into different things. I'm working on a book for one thing that I've been writing for some time just looking at some of the weird life on earth and what, what uh, weird creatures there are for us to explore here on, on earth and what they might teach us about potentials for alien life. Hmm. Uh, and then uh, Jim Pass and myself, uh, Jim uh, is the CEO and president of the Astrosociological Research Institution. Okay. And he and I are going to write a book chapter together here uh, about how the social sciences, mm -hmm. uh, how they play into our search for technosignatures. Uh, so I mentioned earlier biosignatures, these, these signs of life that we can look for in looking for, for life on Earth and beyond. Uh, a lot of us now are getting really interested in a form of biosignature called a technosignature. Uh, these are things like Dyson spheres or in industrial molecules that we can find in atmospheres of exoplanets. Uh, anything that we can use to show that there's not just alien life, but an advanced form of industrial technological alien life would be a technosignature. Okay. And so... Huh. Uh, so we're kind of thinking about, you know, how, how do the social sciences play into that? How does sociology and art and history and philosophy, how do these other ways of us exploring who and what we are play into our understanding of these technosignatures and our search for them? Awesome. And there is a, yeah, there's a huge library of papers at Dr. Pass's site. Um, I keep asking him to come on and uh, I, I don't think he likes public speaking very much. He doesn't say no, but uh, he hasn't said yes either. But I would love to have him on because that topic of, uh, say, Mars, people going to Mars and living there and creating their own society, their values and what's normal is going to veer off from what we do on Earth. And it's kind of hard to wrap your head around, right? And I, I'm a oh, fiction yeah, writer and I'm fat by this topic, right? Um, anybody else who wants to learn about, you mentioned the Colorado School of Mines. Uh, I did an episode with Dr. Chris Dreyer of that. And, uh, and they've got um, what I will call the asteroid mining program. <laughs> it's the mm -hmm. Space Resources Management Program or something like that. Uh, really, really cool program there. Did you know that the small sat industry has a 40% and greater partial and full mission failure rate? That's terrible. And yet I find most people in the space industry try to treat this as if it's no big deal. They don't even want to acknowledge it. And I think that's ridiculous. If anything, 
anywhere else was having a 40% or greater failure rate trying to turn your car on, right? If, you're, if your vehicle or your cell phone didn't work four times out of 10, two times out of five that you tried it, you would go berserk and you would do everything you could to make sure that it got fixed. The small sat process engineering department at Cold Star Technologies is all about showing you how to manage processes better, to eliminate the causes at the root that create these partial and full emission failure rates. And you don't need to hear it from me. You can look this stuff up in studies. It just comes out of what you might think are the dumbest things. Oh, I know that. Well, to know but not to do means you don't know it. You rush. You rush the production schedule. You don't manage it right. You don't have the project sponsorship set up quite right, and the resources aren't there. You've got this mission launch date that's moving, and you just throw the schedule out the window. One-third to one-half of your project schedule needs to be for testing. And yet, this is the first thing to get smashed in the head by a wrench. As soon as the monkey wrench is thrown into the operation, testing time goes out the window. You want to avoid this problem? The answer is not more physical engineering. It's not. More engineers are not going to solve your problem. You have tons of engineers. I am not going to tell you how to engineer a satellite. <laughs> I've got Dr. Rick Fleeter and other people on my team for that. And we're not going to come in there and tell you how to engineer it. But on the process side, and I have had engineers on this show say, engineers don't know nothing about processes. That's not me saying it, it's the engineers saying it, but I will definitely echo it. If you want to have a manufacturing process that ensures that your small sets, cube sets, get up there and work. Come talk to us at Cold Star Tech. If I can jump, jump ship there for one second, when it comes to Mars, uh, if you know who Sasha Sagan is, uh, she's uh, uh, Carl Sagan's daughter recently, uh, Sasha Sagan recently wrote a book uh, for small creatures such as we, where she considers um, ritual and you know how we approach rituals from maybe a secular standpoint and how rituals have functioned for humans through history based on our biology based on the astronomy of our world we've created lots of rituals around life and death and marriage and birth and all these kinds of things uh, she recently came here to boulder uh, to our bookstore on her book tour i had a great chance to, to, to meet her and, and say hi and a question that came up and actually it came from a fame lab presentation by a friend of mine named moshe rhodes uh, Moshe uh, comes from the, the Jewish faith, and he had this question in his Fame Lab talk, and it's, it's kind of stuck with me. I, I brought it up for Sasha as well, and it's, it's one that I think is fun for people to think of. So uh, the Jewish calendar is set on lunar cycles here on Earth. And for your listeners, uh, Mars doesn't have the same kind of moon that we do. Mars has two very small moons, Phobos and Deimos, and their lunar cycles are very different than our current lunar cycles. And so the question is, you know, for... Early, early Jewish settlers who might go to Mars and try to set up colonies there and live there, uh, how will they still follow that tradition? Will they, will they continue using the Earth's moon? Or will they start to kind of create their own traditions and maybe even revamp their own calendar based on lunar cycles or, or you know, moon cycles uh, around Mars? And that kind of ties back into this idea of, you know, like what, what do we do sociologically, you know, and with, with, with you know, ourselves when we go to other worlds like this and explore right it becomes a problem the communication between these places and and the effect of political results like 
this, it, you start thinking about something as simple as the Star Wars Empire or something, and it devolves into nonsense very quickly. It's like there's no way I can know what's happening on the other side of, of our political system over here, right, in some other end of the galaxy, and do something about it in, in any time, even if I've got fast ships. Uh, it, and the calendar thing, the, the just communicating and the times, right, it's all local. The, the more mm -hmm. you get into it, it's all really local, and you have to have some objective standard somewhere of, uh, that we all agree is time. Um, yeah, it gets it gets uh, very very confusing very quickly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As a writer, I hate it. <laughs> yeah, because <for sure. laughs> I want to do the hard science, right, to back it up, but I just can't. Uh, but yeah. maybe somebody smarter than me will do that. Let's get into mm -hmm. a question here that I had, um, which is sort of related to what we're talking about here. I watched a few things uh, that you've done, interviews and that, and I realized I saw a pattern. I was like, huh. Um, you get, from my perspective anyway, um, simultaneously amused and annoyed about some things about the way the public views science fiction and uh, like the, the Asimov's Laws of Robotics thing came to mind. Mm -hmm. so are there a couple of examples like that that you could explain for, for our audience to kind of straighten people out about thinking? Yeah, I mean, definitely. So I, I love science fiction. I've been a huge science fiction nerd for a long time. There are very simple things where for instance, a lot of people, you know, I, I tell them I do astrobiology and they, they start going like to like the little green men and things that look like Yoda and stuff like that. And obviously, you know, we create aliens to look like us because we're telling human stories through science fiction. Even when we create aliens for science fiction, we're still using them to tell human stories for each other. Uh, and so we always create them to look somewhat like humans. Now, not always. There have been some really good uh, science fiction books, comic books and movies, video games out there where they've tried to kind of, you know, get away from that um, anthropocentric model of what an alien should look like. Um, but yeah, like Asimov's robot laws are a really, a really good case in point. Uh, you know, a lot of times we talk about artificial intelligence and, and what's coming in. And I've, I've heard a lot of people like, cause the Asimov's laws have now just like transfused through all science fiction and even into our science a little bit. And it's interesting when people are like, you know, well, we have these robot laws, right? Like it'll, it'll control robots. We can control AI that way. But if you actually go back and read iRobot and some of these stories that Asimov started and others have continued forward, the point was that the laws don't work. Uh, the point of the story was that the laws always caused these ethical conundrums for the robots and for the society. And so that the laws always cause more problems than good. And so I think too often people kind of forget that. And it's one of the reasons why when we're having conversations, for instance, about artificial intelligence, we need to really start considering how we're going to program uh, ethics into artificial intelligence, or if we're, if we're even going to leave ethics out altogether and, and instead try to keep it, you know, just machine based, but how do we con include some level of control there? Uh, one, one funny story is, is the paperclip story, for instance, um, which someone actually created a game for. Uh, and this, this is a thought experiment uh, that came from Nick Bostrom uh, that what if we create an AI and we tell this AI that its sole job is to create paper clips, but we don't give it any other control, any, any other kind of way of guiding itself. And in the long term of this thought experiment, this AI could basically subvert all of human economy to make paper clips, take over our planet, turn our planet into paper clips, and before long consume the entire universe in paper clips. Uh, and there is a fun game um, you can play on your computer. Uh, it takes about a day or two to get through it all. Um, where you basically destroy the universe in paper clips and it's hilarious. Uh, but there's a lot of these issues that pop up and science fiction. 
I think is one of the, 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 the best ways for us to explore a lot of the ethical issues that come up in science. Uh, I think all scientists should have some ethical training. They, they should train in philosophy and try to consider, you know, like the, the depths of the science itself. And, you know, we don't even know exactly what science is necessarily. Science is a tool for sure, but our ideas of how science works has, have changed through time. And we're, we're still not entirely sure if we're all on the same page. Um, some people are still out there, you know, espousing Karl Popper uh, and, and, you know, th these ideas of falsifiability, even though that's kind of been many, many decades ago, and we kind of have moved on there a little bit in, in our thinking. Uh, and I, I think uh, science fiction is a good way for us to then explore some of the ethical questions that come up uh, inside of our, our, our pursuit of science. Uh, Michael Crichton, for instance, yeah, did a fantastic job. Yeah. Uh, his, his stories did a great job mm. of presenting us with, you know, some of these, these moral dilemma that can occur uh, when, we, when we don't think through what we're doing scientifically, from Jurassic Park to Prey, uh, and then, you know, with where things are at right now, one of his earliest works, The Andromeda Strain, was really important for us to think, you know, how, how do we approach some of these issues in the sciences from a human standpoint, from an ethical standpoint? Uh, and it's, those are really important questions to address. And yeah. I feel sometimes like people in the public aren't really aware that that's what science fiction really has to offer. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and they, they kind of want, you know, the, the big laser battles and the explosions and action and stuff like that. And I love that stuff too. Mm -hmm. But I, I think at its, at its base for me, science fiction really is a way for us to, to ask deeper questions about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a much better philosophical toolkit uh, than just action and, and adventure. Um, as like a Western transported into space. And the Andromeda strain is a great example. It's a procedural suspense story, very mm -hmm. well written. And uh, I haven't read uh, Jurassic Park, but I have read Sphere and, uh, and the Andromeda strain and I'm reading Airframe right now, which is another procedural one. Yeah, I haven't um, read Airframe, but, but Sphere, yeah. Sphere, Sphere is the only book I've ever read mm -hmm. that actually scared me. Huh. Uh, I was reading Sphere. I was in a dark living room. I had these glass sliding doors and the, the curtains were open, but it was nighttime. It was dark outside. And I was reading this book and I, I, I actually had to put the book down yeah. and go and close these curtains because I just felt so creeped out that someone was like watching me. Huh. Uh, it's a very good read. Yeah. I, I found it a much better book than the movie. The movie, I had not read the book yet and it infuriated me. I actually turned it off, which is a mm -hmm. rare thing for me. Normally I give movies a chance and uh, mm -hmm. I've watched it again since and been a little more forgiving, but the book was way, way better. Uh, and, and anybody other than it's not really science fiction, but anybody who's played the Doom games will remember Demios and Phobos quite well. So mm -hmm. this stuff, this stuff does, does permeate our culture. And I, I often feel that people don't have really know how much Michael Crichton has affected our our entertainment and our understanding because a lot of his books got turned into films a lot mm -hmm. oh yeah people know one or two of them but I don't think they know about all the others that have been that have been turned into films as well so mm -hmm. let's wrap up with this uh, so the blue marble mission getting young people interested in science and space and that what what are the what are the good uh, grabbing on points? You know, I guess you don't want to grab the kids and shake them, but uh, but what are they attaching on to? What are they resonating with that that is helping direct their attention to that and giving them the idea that like yeah, I can do this, which is I think a big barrier um, to, to to overcome. Uh, yeah, so I, I actually think that younger generations on our planet, and it's weird, it's a, not just here in the U.S. across the globe, hmm. there are young people 
who are getting interested in science and engineering in a, in a way that they never have before. And I personally think a large part of that is the internet. The mm -hmm. internet age has really changed things a lot. There's information now available to people who've never would have had it before, who can now for the first time see things like the blue marble image from Apollo 17 and the Earthrise image from Apollo 8 and the pale blue dot. And they can kind of get a sense of the overview effect of the, the smallness of our world and how we're all basically riders on the same spaceship together. And I think people out there want something bigger. Mm -hmm. I think we're at this really strange existential time right now as a species where people want more than our socio-political systems and economic systems. They want more. They're thirsty for knowledge. And I think astrobiology is around right at the perfect time for this to happen because astrobiology asks us to look inside and say, who are we? What are we? Is there more out there and are we alone? And so young people want to get involved in this. I, I've noticed it from all over the globe, from Turkey and Morocco and India and the U.S. and Canada and all over Europe. And uh, people in Africa have reached out to me and Australia and just everywhere around the globe. I've had people reach out to me now, uh, younger students and some, some, some older learners as well, who want to get involved in astrobiology, who want to get involved in this pursuit to know bigger things. And so that's it's kind of doing the work for us really because these people, they, they're thirsty for knowledge. They want to find it. And so they seek us out and then we try to do our best to help them find other ways to engage and be involved in our, in our global space community. Uh, and as you said earlier, I mean, space exploration is cool and the, the space community is groovy. Uh, space Twitter, for instance, if you go on Twitter yeah. uh, and you just like check out some of us who are out there sharing space stuff, it's a, it's a really cool groovy community of people. And there's just so much awesome stuff for us to learn and share together and so i think for us bringing in some younger people and helping kind of guide them helping them find their way uh even if they don't become scientists helping them find some way to learn about the science um is really just you know a pleasure and an honor for us right right and folks i had a hang up for years about i'm not a scientist and that kept me out of space a field that i really really wanted to be in for many many years and i finally got over it and uh, Look what happened. <laughs> so, yeah, we, yeah. You, you don't know, need a PhD a to be very, a scientist. No, you, know, it, no, you don't. Like, and, you, you, don't you, you, you can think scientifically, and that yes. makes you a scientist. You can approach, you can approach an, a level of understanding mm -hmm. through science that allows us to better know our place in the universe without having a PhD. It's not a requirement. Right. Yeah. And I thought a big worry of mine a year ago, let's say even still, would be, oh, these guys, they got their... PhDs from Stanford and Harvard and Caltech. I'm not going to keep up. And uh, it's just for anyone listening, this isn't about me. It's about expressing this idea of uh, I got I got the realization of I'm not competing with these guys. I have a whole different skill set and knowledge set over here. As long as I can understand enough to be able to talk intelligently with them, we'll get we'll get to the the point. Right. Uh, we'll get we'll get to the end of it and they can go in and do all the figgly stuff that, that is super important, you know, and I'll deal with the machine learning and data science and business process and marketing stuff over here that they don't want to touch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so work out. Everyone, everyone can have a spot uh, that, that will fit in well for you. So. Uh, this has been Dr. Graham Lau. Where, where can people find out more about you? Obviously, the Blue Marble Space uh, Institute, which I'll link to in the description below. What else could they uh, follow you on? Uh, yeah, my, my personal website is cosmobiota.com. Uh, so Cosmo and then B-I-O-T-A.com. Uh, you can also find me all over the interwebs. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Cosmobiologist. 
I'm on Facebook and in all kinds of other places. You can find me in the Reddit world and all kinds of other places as well. Uh, it's not too hard to find me. <laughs> all right. Fantastic. Well, I really had fun with this today. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. This is Jason Canning from Cold Star Tech. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do want to get email notifications of upcoming episodes or episodes that have just been released and maybe a little news sprinkled in here and there, you can sign up for email notifications at coldstartech.com MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring. That's another little show that I do. It's uh, once, twice, three times a week, something like that. Anytime there's news or uh, an update on who I'm meeting and, and what I'm uh, studying in the space field. So you can go Go check that out. On the YouTube channel, I can do something that I cannot do on uh, Anchor for the audio-only uh, side of things. The YouTube channel allows me to have playlists, and so you might want to go to the channel, the Cold Star Tech channel, and check out those playlists because you will find, you can go down a rabbit hole basically into several areas like space law and policy, uh, small sats, and I think that's a lot easier than trying to scroll through 130 episodes or something like that, <laughs> looking for the thing that you want. So I recommend going and checking that out. And remember, if you're ready to take your space business to the next level or you're a VC looking for a deep and very valuable insight into a space company you're looking at investing in or investing further in, come and talk to us. Thanks for listening.